and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. Okay, everyone. So I think you're really going to enjoy this show today. We are going to be talking about imposter syndrome. And it is said that about 70% of people are beginning to develop this syndrome. And we're going to be speaking to Dr. Sandy Mann, who is a psychologist, university lecturer and director of the Mind Training Clinic in Manchester, where much of her material for this book entitled Why Do I Feel Like an Imposter is derived. So Dr. Sandy, welcome to the Path Love podcast. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. Yes, and I'm delighted to learn a little bit more about this imposter syndrome. Um, I, Your book is actually the first book that I read about it, but I have been familiar with it because I have had some of my clients coming in saying exactly what your book is all about, that they are feeling like an imposter at work or in their lives. And um, so we would have to work through that in some you know, clinical therapy work. And uh, it's just really fascinating. Uh, I think this syndrome that is going about where people are just feeling like they're faking it, <laughs> going through the world, just kind of like faking what they're doing and not really feeling like um, they're kind of worthy of what they're putting out there in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting uh, and, and good for me to hear that from you because I had come across it before, but I hadn't come across the term in relation to my clinical work. I'd only really heard of it in relation to uh, the workplace. So the original work that was done on imposter syndrome was carried out in um, in the workplace. And it was originally thought that this was a workplace phenomenon. Um, and I found that it's actually very, very prevalent in all sorts of areas of life. And that's why I wanted to write the book, really, just to bring this out of a workplace setting um, and into more of a, a setting of everyday life. And it's a ph- phenomenon that we, we're all experiencing, 70% of us. Yeah, so if people are hearing this term for the very first time, can you give us the definition of it? How do people know if they are actually experiencing this? Right, so the thing with imposter syndrome is that there are three particular characteristics, and you need to have all three for this to be actually classed as imposter syndrome. Um, Anything else is probably just something like low self-esteem. So the first thing that you have to have is this kind of belief that other people have an inflated view of your abilities or skills than you do. And that's really key because if other people don't think you're amazing and you don't think you're amazing, that's something different. That's some, that's a whole different issue. But the, it's the idea that other people have this uh, inflated view of you um, and you don't share it. You think that they've got this, this in, impression of you that is completely false. They think you're better than you really think you are. Um, and coupled with that then is this intense fear that you're going to be found out and exposed as, as a fake um, and that can make you very, very anxious. And the third attribute is that you're, you do recognise your successes because, remember, this is something that only strikes people who are successful or good at what they do. So you do recognise that, but you constantly attribute that success to external factors like luck or somebody else's input, not your own skills and abilities. So it's those three factors combined that make this imposter syndrome. And can you also talk about who, whose lifestyles are more at risk for this? 
Yeah, so there's a number of um, fields or, or, or professions or types of lifestyle, lifestyle that are going to be more acceptable. So, for example, when you first qualify in your field, uh, for example, when you first get, get your first degree or pr first professional qualification, anything that means, oh, right, now I am this or that or the other, now I'm qualified, and you suddenly think, well, I've got the qualifications, but I don't really think I'm good enough, even though my qualifications tell me so. So that's prime time for imposter syndrome. Uh, similar if you're starting a new course or education or university, um, perhaps you're a mature student who's um, starting university, it's very common that they think that they're not as good as the other students who are younger. Um, being promoted at work, you think that you might not be deserving of it. So these are all sort of uh, situations when anybody can develop or you're more likely to, to develop um, imposter syndrome. And it was uh, interesting for me to see when you uh, labeled some of the famous imposters, like uh, Maya Angelou being quoted for saying um, when she was, uh, she you had put that she has won uh, three Grammys and been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize and a Tony Award. And she had said, uh oh, they're going to find out now. I've run a game on everybody and they're going to find me out. And also uh, actor Tom Hanks talking about when are they going to discover that I am in fact a fraud and take everything away from me. So there are people who are also famous that feel this as well. Well, well, remember that this is something that affects successful people. So famous people are the ones who've got to the top of their profession. So they are the best that they can be. They're the most successful. So they are, are by definition, successful and therefore that, that they're going to be the ones most at risk so it doesn't surprise me that you do see a lot of imposter syndrome in in these uh, very famous successful people at the top of their profession and what about the family background um, if people are want to know if the significance of their family background could impact this from happening can you talk about the uh, two types of family dynamics yeah, so there are a couple of sort of um, areas where, you know, or, or like you say, fa family dynamics that are making more prone. It doesn't mean that you're going to get imposter syndrome, but you might be more prone. Um, so, for example, if you have a high achieving sibling, um, if you've grown up with somebody, a, a brother or sister who's been labelled as, as, as the clever one, the high achieving one, um, and you might have another label like you're the friendly one or the sensitive one um, and you grow up sort of torn between believing that label and trying to disprove it by aiming high working hard trying to do well but even when you earn success your family might still be unimpressed because compared to the other sibling you're never really as good as them so you know you keep trying to achieve but as the family myth continues you begin to wonder maybe the family's right and that all your achievements are actually down to luck or other factors so the flip side of that is the child who is labeled as, as brilliant you know the prodigal child and here it's a bit different because here you grow up with these expectations um, that you are amazing, you put on a pedestal, you're clever, you're a genius, whatever. Um, and the problem is when you start to experience failures or at least the realisation that you may not be as perfect as your family seems to think you are. So then you begin to sort of mistrust the perceptions that your parents have of you and you begin to doubt yourself and you realise that, you know, you're going to have to work really hard to meet the, your parents' expectations. And so you start to believe that you're not really the genius that your parents think you are and therefore you must be an imposter. Hmm. 
And the other thing that I liked about your book, too, is that you do have self-assessment quizzes that people can take um, to kind of figure out what type of imposter uh, they might be, uh, what are some of the signs and the symptoms. And I just wanted to read on the first self-assessment quiz that you have just a few of the questions just to get our listeners asking themselves these questions. And maybe you and I can delve into some of the signs and symptoms. But um, with the self-assessment quiz, you have a couple of questions here asking the reader. How easy do you find it to accept praise? When you do something well, how likely are you to dismiss it as not really much? Uh, When you do something well, how likely are you to attribute your success to luck? When you do something less well, how likely are you to attribute your failure to luck? A couple of other questions here. How important is it for you to be the best at something that matters to you? How important is success for you? How important is it to you to find a hero to befriend and impress? How likely are you to focus on what you have not done well compared to what you have done well? And let's go to, let's see, maybe self-assessment question 15. How happy are you to live with a piece of work you have done that you know isn't perfect? So there kind of sounds like a lot of perfectionism stuff going on in there. Do you want to talk about some of the signs and symptoms of developing this self-assessment quiz for people? Yeah, so working exceptionally hard, um, perfectionism, uh, discounting praise, they kind of all go hand in hand. Um, so we work, the imposter feels that they have to work really, really hard in order to prevent their phoniness from being discovered. You know, if I work really, really hard, nobody will know I'm, impo- I'm an imposter. So this is a kind of cover-up strategy of hard work. And it usually pays off because this person usually is successful. So it pays off and, and you feel good because you've got your successes. Um, but and, but you start to think, well, you've only achieved that success because you work so hard. And actually, that shows I'm an imposter. So you get into this kind of cycle of, you know, achieve, trying to achieve perfectionism and never really getting, never you know, never really appreciating it because you just think, well, I'm only perfect because I've worked so hard. Or alternatively, Alternatively, you're trying to achieve something that can't be achieved. You know, you put the bar so high that you're never going to achieve it because nobody can be perfect. So you're never going to achieve it. And then that proves that you're an imposter. Or even if you do achieve it, you just say, well, I must have put the bar too low. You know, it was easy. And again, that's part of discounting praise, discounting your own success. If other people praise you, you can't really believe it because that would change your whole view of you being an imposter and and you think well I, you know you're an imposter so it must be that the other person is wrong so you end up discounting the praise and saying well they're only saying that they don't know or they're just being nice and actually i really am an imposter and it goes on and on into that cycle there was a part of me when i was reading your book too and i was trying to think about how to bring in a little more spirituality into this there was a part of me that thought well of course as souls, you know, as consciousness, we all might feel like an imposter as we incarnate into this physical body that really isn't truly of what we are as consciousness. You know, this body, this physical body is, is a vehicle where we, uh, you know, operate it through our consciousness. And then we do kind of land here on earth and we have to play these roles. So there was a part of me too, that was kind of thinking, um, you know, I know we're calling it a syndrome per se, but I also wonder if it's a little bit of a spiritual crisis that the soul has just having to be in something physical for, I don't know, maybe 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And, you know, it's like you're trying to learn in different ways to evolve the consciousness, yet you 
you are, we are playing roles here. So it could feel a little counterintuitive to who and what we really are when we are not in the physical body. Do you have any thoughts about that? And I'm taking that way out to a totally different direction, but... Yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, um, as you're thinking that, I'm thinking, um, yeah, no, I haven't thought of that. Um, it is a completely different direction. I mean, we're certainly playing roles and that's the kind of the whole point. And we play many different roles, as um, I think Shakespeare said, um, all the world's a stage and um, men and women have uh, are nearly players, I think he said. <laughs> um, so we, uh, you know, we, we, we are playing roles and um those roles do change throughout our lives and we don't always fit them or we don't always feel we fit them. Um, but it's interesting what you say about the body. It's not something that um, I've consciously given much thought of, although um, I think, you know, spirituality and, and kind of religion and belief is actually um, quite interesting in, in relation to imposter syndrome. I do talk about religious imposters as well. People feel, religious people feel that they're imposters. Um, but there are a lot of people who feel that they don't, match their body and and you know this is considered to be a mental health problem but um people who feel that they're um you know you, you talk about a thin person in a fat person body just trying to get out and um men who think they're you know in a female body and and, and all these sorts of um dysmorphias perhaps where you don't actually match you know you don't feel your soul matches your outer um person and therefore you do feel an imposter so it does go into all sorts of realms um but remember that the whole point of imposter syndrome or um imposter phenomenon is that you are successful so that's that's element of an element of success there so the the areas that you're talking about are perhaps a little bit they're interesting but perhaps a little bit off piste in terms of the 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 actual three elements of imposter syndrome Sure. Yeah. And, you know, for those people who maybe aren't too familiar with uh, diagnoses and mental health, what, when we use the word syndrome, what makes something a syndrome? Is it because there are these three characteristics that the person needs to meet? Or, you know, why, why do we call it that? Well, I'm really glad you raised that um, because actually it shouldn't really be called a syndrome because it's so common that it's really almost normal. And to call it a syndrome suggests there's something wrong with you and that it's a mental health condition that needs treatment or medication. Um, and, you know, when 70 percent of the people suffer it from at some point, it probably shouldn't be called a syndrome. And in fact, the, the original people who coined the term said they prefer to use phenomenon or something rather than syndrome. So it isn't a mental health condition. It doesn't have um, a diagnostic criteria in the um, the DSM, if, you, if you're familiar with that or your um, listeners are familiar with the uh, classification, the mental health classification Bible. So it doesn't, it doesn't belong there. Um, so in that sense, it's not a mental health condition. And I do want to stress this. So it is good that you've raised this, that everybody, well, 70% of us experience it at some point. And that's okay. There's actually some benefits to experiencing it. It only really becomes a problem when it drags you down and it's constant and you're feeling constantly fake and it's affecting your mental health, your anxiety, your depression and your functioning. That's when it becomes a problem. Right. And where it can kind of maybe stop people from actually succeeding or, you know, sharing their gifts or doing yeah. what they're really good at because... Yeah, I, exactly. I, sorry to interrupt, but you, you're spot on there because uh, I have 
I've had clients come to me and uh, they've, they've quit their jobs and they or they're about to quit their jobs because they don't think they're good enough and there's no they are good enough and you know objectively they're doing a great job and it's it's obviously a great shame if somebody is quitting their job for that reason you know quit your job if you want but not for that reason and and that obviously is quite a debil- becomes quite a debilitating condition Yes. Now, uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, there there are different types of imposters, um, kind of, I guess, classifying people here, and our listeners might want to figure out maybe which category they fall under, but you have uh, the perfectionistic, the uh, superwoman or superman, mm-hmm. you also have the natural genius, mm-hmm. the rugged individual, mm-hmm. and the expert... Yeah. So would you like to say a little bit about each one of those? Yeah. So first of all, I want to say that these were these five types of imposter um, were developed by Valerie Young, who is um, one of the foremost uh, researchers into imposter syndrome in America. Um, and she, she calls them competence types. Um, so these are very much based on her, her work. So the perfectionist um, is somebody who we've kind of talked about. You know, you set yourself such high goals and expectations that you're rarely able to meet them. So when you fall short, this reinforces your internal belief that you're not good enough. And even if you do succeed, um, you don't feel satisfied because you just think, well, I could have done better. Perhaps I set the bar too low. So you're always focusing on what you could do to improve rather than what you've done well. Um, So this can just result in anxiety, self and unhappiness. So we've kind of talked about the perfectionist one, um, but the Superman, Superwoman is slightly different because um, their feelings of success are tied in not so much in what they do, but how much they do. Um, and I think this is quite a kind of modern phenomenon that um, you've got to be good at everything, not just good, but brilliant. You've got to be the best at everything. So it's a broader remit than the perfectionist. The perfectionist might might say, well, I've only got to be good at one thing, work or cooking or painting, whatever. But the imposter, the super imposter, has to be good at everything and juggling everything. You know, they're the sort of, um, they're often women, actually, sort of the woman who who seems to do so much that you think, you know, how do they do it all? You know, they, they've got kids and they cook, home-cooked meals for them and they're on the school PTA and they've got a successful job and they volunteer here, there and everywhere and they're just all-round brilliant. But of course, it's very, very hard to live up to that. Nobody can be brilliant at everything. Um, and the more you take on, the more you have to prove to yourself and the world just how great you are. Um, and you, you're just not able to keep up with that. And so when you start failing or not doing as well as you want to, you see that as evidence of you being an imposter, when the reality is it's just evidence of you being human. So that's the problem with the the super imposter. Um, the natural genius is kind of the one that we, we talked about with the um, family background of the, the child that's put on the pedestal. But um, this kind of imposter um, probably enjoyed very early success and they're kind of brought up to believe that they're great and they're amazing. Um, and probably they didn't have to work too hard to achieve their successes. So the problems become when they stop finding success so easy and you know as you get through life you do probably have to start working and you you start thinking well I can't be this genius after all because I'm having to work so hard so it's all fake really so that becomes a problem for them um the rugged individual is is the sort of person who thinks they have to do everything themselves in order for it to count so they don't want to work in a team because if they work in a team then other people can contribute to your success. And that makes you think, well, I'm not good enough. I need other people to carry me. And so you feel like an imposter there. Um, and the final one, the, the expert, 
this is somebody who um, is labelled as an expert in their field. So um, it's a bit like me giving interviews about imposter syndrome. You know, you're labelled as an expert. You go on, uh, you know, whatever the radio or whatever television or people ask you for advice and you're seen in your community or whatever as an expert. Um, and you always are thinking, well, actually, you know, everyone thinks I'm an expert, but, I, but there's so much I don't know that I can't be an expert and I'm, I'm a fake. And of course, nobody can know everything. So it is true that you're not, however expert you are, you're not going to know everything. But that doesn't make you a fake, but you feel it and you feel an imposter. So that's the, the final type of imposter. Yeah, thank you for going through those. And one of the things that came to mind about the super imposter, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with that as well is the connection to social media. Because I can't tell you how many clients have come in and they'd say, Oh, you know, we just got these beautiful family pictures taken over the weekend. And I posted them on Facebook and my family looks super happy. But what nobody knows is that my husband and I got into a huge fight, he punched a hole in the wall, you know, the kids were screaming and horrible. And, you know, it's like what people are um, trying to to put up as I've got it all together and then really behind the scenes I think social media in a sense too can create a little bit of this imposter syndrome of what what are we truly presenting to the world is it really accurate uh, accurate reflection of what we're living and if we are posting things that look way better than what they really are I think that can create the imposter syndrome as well. Oh, massively. And it's an impact on, on the person who posts posts and other people who see it. So, like you say, as the poster, um, you feel fake because this is the photoshopped version of the real you. And the real you is never going to be as good as that. But also for the people who are, who are seeing your posts, for them... Um, you know, if, if you're the one that's seeing everybody else's posts and everybody else looks amazing and happy and doing these amazing things and they're successful. And then you look at your own life and you think, well, mine's not like that. My life isn't like that. You know, I have the screaming kids and the, and the, the angry husband and the work that's not great and the holiday that wasn't amazing. So I'm but everyone thinks I'm brilliant. So I must be the imposter. So it works both ways. Social media and the photoshopping of our lives to perfection creates this this imposterish feeling both for the receiver of that and for the poster of it right yeah and i also liked in your book too how you were talking about the societal expectations uh for the millennials and uh the millennials are people who have been born between the early 1980s and mid 1990s so for those of you listening if you fall in that range you'd be considered generation y but can you talk about um the societal expectation the connection to imposter syndrome in millennials yeah, so uh, the, the idea with the millennials is that they were the, the culture that were brought up um, what we call the, the, the trophy children, where um, the stereotype is that you go to you get a trophy just for turning up. Um, it's it's a generation where um, we we nurture their self esteem and their confidence, and we don't want them to see them fail. And um, you know, race, race sports days in school started to be banned because we didn't want any losers, and everyone got a certificate for taking. Um, you know, the kids were, were, were protected and wrapped in cotton wool um, so that they didn't experience failure um, and to protect their fragile self-esteem, 
But the problem is that you get to the stage where you, you nothing is valued. You, you know, you're growing up thinking, getting all these awards and kids have, you know, loads of awards and trophies, but they're not really achieved anything. So they feel they, they know that they recognize that they feel a, a, an imposter. They've got all these um, awards, but they're not actually they don't think they actually deserve them. I had a client actually who, um, you know, this really struck home with, and, and um, you know, she, I, I kind of mentioned she was struggling, really struggling, um, and I, and she'd really achieved something. And I said, oh, you know, you must be really proud, and you know, what do your parents think? It was a young person. Your parents must be so proud of you. And she goes, well, my parents would be proud if I got out of bed. You know, the, the bar set so low that she didn't appreciate, didn't, there was no sort of genuineness in that praise. She discounted it. It didn't mean anything. It just made her feel like an imposter because the praise and the achievements and the trophies are so easy to obtain that you, you just feel like an imposter for obtaining them. Mm, yeah, very interesting. Um, so how, let's talk about some tips and strategies. What can people begin to do to kind of help themselves to move out of feeling like an imposter? Um, and maybe I'll give a, a personal example. As I was reading through your book, I was like, well, have I ever felt this way? And it might have kind of happened to me when I started the podcast, actually. My um, my business partner, Mike, was like, oh, we have to create a podcast. You know, I think you should host it. I'm like, I don't know anything about podcasting. I'm not a podcast host. I'm a mental health therapist, you know? I'm like, what the heck do I know about running a show like this? But then I kind of uh, calmed myself down. I said, well, hold on a second. Basically, all this that this is, is me interviewing people and asking questions. And that's that's what I do in my line of work. I ask so many questions and I know how to talk to people. And, you know, every single day I'm having really inspiring conversations with my clients. So what's the big deal if the person on the other end is an author or a New York Times bestseller? You know, it's still a human being. I'm still having a conversation and I know how to ask questions. So I kind of talked myself out of maybe feeling like an imposter, like who am I to be a podcast host when I'm over here in this, you know, clinical field. Um, how can I really pull off a show? And what does that mean? And, and all of that. And but then that was my process to kind of talk myself out of some of the fear, some of the yeah. self confidence, the self doubt, can I really do this? Should I do this? Will people take me seriously? Um, you know, so that was kind of my process. And maybe a time where I felt like this imposter syndrome could have crept up. Yeah. And you're very good at your job, may I say. <laughs> thank you <laughs> but don't discount that praise because that will make you an imposter <laughs> i will just say thank you and gladly accept it exactly exactly but that that's actually key and that's a really good example because um what you did there was exactly what i recommend people do in in my books although you know i might suggest that people take it a little bit further but what you're doing is looking at the evidence and saying what skills are needed here what is the evidence that i have them um and you, you know sort of I ask people to write these down. I actually put it in black and white. But um, the way I just, when I just said to you there, um, actually, you, you know, you're very good at what you do. That's that's a piece of praise. Now you can decide whether to, to believe that or not. But what you need to do is um, write that down if you're feeling like an imposter and look at the odds. What are the odds that, that that might be genuine praise or not? You know, is there an explanation? Could I have just given it just to be nice? Could I, you know, was it genuine? So you're looking for evidence, in other words, that you are good at what you do um, and then rating that evidence. So what is the evidence that I'm good? What is the um, evidence that, I, that I'm not? Um, and what are the other explanations? for that success so let me give you another example um you, you've got promoted at work 
okay and you think oh well actually i'm not really i'm not really good enough but what's the evidence so you could look at the evidence the evidence is that i did well in this presentation i've got this qualification um i managed this team so you write it all down and then you think what are the explanations that could account for this uh this achievement each of those achievements so um the presentation they gave a good presentation well maybe that was down to luck okay how much of that do you think was down to luck or what percentage of that achievement is down to luck well maybe 40 percent. write that down what else could it be due to well i did work hard and i did prepare really good slides and i used really good animations whatever how much you know write down how much percent you think is due to that and this way you get a much more realistic view of all the elements that contribute to your success all the things that might be internal so your skill your talent your hard work and all the things that might be external like luck or other people's input or people just being nice and praising you just to be nice and friendly or whatever but if you do that for all your different achievements you'll build up a kind of record because you might be able to discount um one person's praise i mean me saying to you you're doing a really good job on this show you might be able to say oh no she's just saying that she's just being nice but if you write that down and if five people say it you know you have to start believing it perhaps because you know we're not all just being nice there's probably some element of truth in it so it's about getting evidence challenging it perhaps speaking to a trusted friend or co-worker and seeing if they can put a perspective on it as well so it is looking at it in a, in a, in a broader perspective i think great thank you and i I think that we should probably also just take a moment to touch on the difference between uh, the male and the female and how the imposter syndrome can look a little bit different for males versus females. So, yeah, I mean, I typically, I don't know about you, but I typically see more mums, uh, sorry, more, more women who are coming with imposterous feelings who are mums and uh, feel that they're not, they're not a good enough parent, especially, or not a good enough mum. I get that more than I will with dads. Um, whereas for men, I tend to see people who feel they're not man enough. So um, they feel that they're not a good enough man, they're not strong enough. Or um, Quite often, I'm seeing more and more people who suffer from um, what we call homosexual OCD, where they're not they're not homosexual, um, but they fear they might be because in their minds or in society's minds, and I don't agree with this, but their minds they think that that's being less of a man, and, and they don't feel that they're man enough. Um, and obviously, those are stereotypes that need challenging, but that's what they feel and that's what they perceive. So that's kind of the difference in in the clinical setting, I think, between what I see between men and women. Great. Thank you for covering that. I just thought that that was kind of important to mention. And you cover that, um, you know, more in depth, too, in the book. But let's also um, share with our listeners more information about the mind training clinic that you have and people who are out in your area in Manchester that might want to work with you that are listening to this podcast. Um, Let's share with our listeners where they can find you and some of the other work that you're doing outside of um, just promoting this book that you have uh, written. Yes, I mean, my my main work, obviously, at the clinic in Manchester is um, working with people with anxiety conditions, mainly, and depression and so uh, phobias panic attacks anxiety ocd um, depression and i do a lot of trauma work as well um, with post-traumatic stress disorder in fact um, i'm sure your um, listeners will have 
heard or been aware of the Manchester Arena bomb um, two years ago in my hometown, the Ariana Grande concert. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did, uh, I still do actually some work with um, clients affected by that. Uh, so I do a lot of trauma work. I am um, a trained, I'm accredited EMDR therapist, um, which you probably know what that is, but it's a trauma therapy. Um, so I do a lot of work with that. I also lecture in um, applied clinical psychology at the University of Central Lancashire. Um, so it keep, keeps me very busy, both of those things. Well, Dr. Sandy, thank you so much for being a guest here with us today. Uh, you provided a lot of information. Um, I think that if people would like to head on over and get more information from this book, where's the best place for them to purchase it? Should they go directly to your website? Probably Amazon. That's always the best place, I think, these days. Or your bookshop, yeah. Amazon, yeah, to get books. Uh, And I'd love to interact with people about their ideas on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Sandy Psych on on Twitter, Psych as in psychology. Um, But I'd love to hear people's feedback and we can get into a conversation there. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you again. This was a great conversation. I enjoyed it. There's also my website, of course, if people want to email me directly to talk about anything. And that's www.mindtrainingclinic.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sandy. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Path 11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there that is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month, and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation, or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four-day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out-of-body experiences and life-changing experiences that I was able to bring back uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends that was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, I'd like you to head on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today.